every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. It's Fed Day, Thursday, the 2nd of November. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, where today we'll be bringing you analysis of the Fed's latest monetary policy meeting. That's coming up. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. And thank you for making us one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong. In today's business and finance headlines, the US Federal Reserve on Wednesday unanimously agreed to hold the federal funds rate in a target range between five and a quarter to five and a half percent, where it's been since July, but kept open the possibility of additional monetary tightening amid mounting evidence the US economy remains strong. This was the second consecutive meeting that the FOMC left interest rates on hold following a string of 11 rate hikes, including four this year. And the Fed also upgraded its forecast for US economic growth. The US Treasury Department is slowing the pace at which it issues longer-dated debt following a steep rise in borrowing costs. The move follows an announcement on Monday from the US Treasury that it expects to borrow $776 billion US dollars in the October to December quarter, although that is less than the $852 billion initially forecast and lower than the $1 trillion borrowed the previous quarter. The Treasury said on Wednesday that it would continue to increase issuance of shorter-dated notes at the pace it set three months ago, while slowing the pace of 10 and 30 year bond issues. China's manufacturing activity contracted in October, according to a closely watched private gauge. The Kaishin China General Manufacturing PMI fell to 49.5 in October from 50.6 in September, missing market forecasts of 50.8. This was the first contraction in factory activity since July, amid a renewed fall in output, suggesting the economic recovery remains fragile. Retail sales in Hong Kong increased 10.1% year-on-year in September in volume terms, slowing from an 11% rise in the previous month, and this was the smallest gain since January. On a monthly basis, retail sales decreased 2% in September, slipping further from a revised 1.6% drop in August. On a value basis, sales increased 13%, marking a 10th consecutive month of growth. This morning, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Hao Hong, Chief Economist at Grow Investment Group. And with a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street, US stocks rallied on the first day of November following three consecutive months of declines after the Federal Reserve kept interest rates unchanged for a second consecutive time. The S&P 500 climbed 1.1% to 4,238, briefly crossing its 200-day moving average. The Dow advanced 222 points, or 0.7% to 33,275, and the Nasdaq Composite added 1.6% to 13,061, boosted by semiconductor stocks. Advanced micro devices surged 9.7%, while Micron Technology and NVIDIA shares both added 3.8%. U.S. Treasury yields saw their biggest daily fall since March following the Fed announcement. The two-year Treasury yield, which moves with interest rate expectations, dropped 14 basis points to 4.95%, its lowest level in three weeks. The yield on the 10-year Treasury note extended Wednesday's decline, dropping 19 basis points to a two-week low of 4.73%. 
The yield on the 10-year Japanese government bond touched a fresh decade high of 0.97% on Wednesday. And the yen rose on Wednesday, as Japanese officials reiterated that they were prepared to intervene to defend the currency if needed. The currency gained a third of a percent to trade at 151.33 against the dollar in Tokyo on Wednesday. In US trading, it strengthened further to 150.9 yen per dollar. Elsewhere in the currency markets, the US dollar index was little changed at 106.65. In Shanghai, the yuan was unchanged at 7.31 and three quarters of a renminbi against the dollar. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index was up 0.1% at 3,023. The index fell 2.9% in October. Hong Kong stocks oscillated around the unchanged line. The Hang Seng fell 11 points to 17,102. That's close to a one-year low. The city's benchmark index dropped 3.9% last month, its third straight monthly loss, as overseas investors continue to offload Chinese stocks for a record third consecutive month in October. And futures markets are pointing to the Hang Seng starting the day unchanged around 17,100. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. On this Thursday morning, we have with us our regular commentator, Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. And also with us, we welcome Hal Hong, Chief Economist at Grow Investment Group. Good morning to you, Hal. Morning, Peter. The US Fed on Wednesday unanimously agreed to hold the federal funds rate in a target range between five and a quarter to five and a half percent. That's where it's been since July, but it did open, keep open the possibility of further monetary tightening. This was the second consecutive meeting that the Fed has left interest rates on hold and including four times now so far this year. It also upgraded um, its forecast for US economic growth, said it expanded at a strong pace compared with the solid clip it described the economy is moving um, in September. It also noted that employment gains have moderated since earlier in the year, but remain strong. Um, start with you, Andrew. Um, what are your thoughts, first of all? I think no surprise is there that, that rates were unchanged, but do you think we're uh, at the peak yet? Uh, <clears throat> depends whose commentator uh, uh, take away from uh, the Fed you read. In fact, uh, the Bloomberg more or less implies that uh, we are almost reached the top. Now, never mind what the Bloomberg says. Looking at the numbers, I, I sort of, I'm a little bit reluctant of saying we're at the top because Powell keeps saying we're not anywhere near on the macroeconomic environment that's going to give us a 2% long-term stable uh, CPI inflation. And in fact, uh, the uh, CPE, which apparently the Fed likes, it is still very, very firmly ensconced on the 3% uh, uh, level. It has come down a little bit. So I just can't see that we have done, we have reached the peak, unless and if the macro numbers, and particularly the inflation numbers, are not the kind of thing that will assure the Fed. Now, bluntly, if I was the Fed, I would want to see at least three months of flat inflation rates mm. for me to even decide, okay, forget about forget about the 2%. I think we hit a 3% and we're going to stay there. But they're not anywhere near that. I haven't heard 
anything from Powell saying perhaps the two percent is a little bit too ambitious or a little bit too too harsh. And in fact, uh, if we hit a three percent flat, that is going to be okay. So my answer is is no. I don't think we have reached the peak for a number of uh, hazy reasons. How? What's your analysis? Do you think we're there yet, or do you think maybe there's more to come? Yeah. Well, I think even if we are uh, at you know closer to the peak of uh, this interest rate cycle, uh, it's gonna be a little tricky for the fed to bring down the interest rate you know because uh, the u.s numbers are very strong right so i think that's one of the reasons why uh um uh, power is uh, leaving the door open uh, for further hikes uh so if the numbers are continue to be strong and the inflation uh momentum seems to be coming down but still you know remaining lingering at a, a relatively high level it will be, you know, a little tricky for uh, the the Fed to bring it down. Uh, so, you know, I would say that, you know, if we say that it's closer to the end of the hiking cycle than the beginning, then I think most most people will agree. And also, you know, even even if you want to hike hike it a little bit further from here, it's like twenty five basis point from here. Uh, it's not going to make a uh, decision uh, difference from for most people. Oh, so I would say that, you know, uh, going forward, uh, the Fed's decision, you know, may not be the key driving factor going forward unless uh, the economic data supplies on the upside or downside. Let me ask you both. Obviously, the economic data has been strong. We saw that uh, third quarter GDP number. But if you look into things, are you seeing the first signs that maybe uh, the economy is slowing? I'm wondering if you look at things, for example, like the unemployment rate, although it is low, it is trending um, higher now. Uh, we are seeing layoffs in certain sectors, in financial firms and technology firms, uh, we're seeing layoffs. So I'm wondering if that's maybe going to spread to other sectors. Do you think, um, both of you, maybe Andrew, you, you could start, are, are there signs out there that maybe now uh, this is starting to bite and the economy is slowing now? You know, it's it's a coward's uh, last resort uh, when you look at the United States, and that is to look at uh, uh, non-agricultural manufacturing numbers and the increases. And these have been uh, quite strong, but sort of they can be quite uh, volatile. Volatile, not in the sense that they're all over the place, but they may not give you a very sustainable uh, uh, upturn. I suspect that the Fed may stick to the easy part, and that is simply to look at inflation, which is the consequence of the underlying strength of the economy rather than the reason, uh, rather than uh, play around with numbers that uh, might not be that reliable. So I stick to my idea, yes, that uh, labor markets are important, but uh, I would suspect that the emphasis of Powell were not anywhere near yet. The 2% level sticks, in fact, to the shiny light, the, the 2% inflation rate. Okay. How, what do yeah. you think? Are you seeing signs of a slowdown at all out there? Well, I'm, I think to add to that, um, the manufacturing sector is clearly slowing down. I think the manufacturing sector around the world, uh, including Germany and, and also uh, China, is uh, slowing down. And I think the developed world's uh, manufacturing sector is actually in deep recession if you look at the PMI number, right? So mm. uh, there's no argument about that. But then the service sector remains very strong, uh, especially in the US. I think this is probably one of the few cycles where we've seen, you know, we're, we're so far into the cycle, probably towards, you know, the the, the, 
the uh, the second half or even well into the second half of the, the economic cycle. But I think you know unemployment uh, remained relatively low. And also, you know, if you look at last night's uh, job number, the ADP number is actually surprised on that side as well. So even though I think the momentum of job creation uh, is slowing, obviously, because, you know, we're so, so further into the sector. But then <laughs> at the same time, uh, you can't say that, you know, the service sector, especially in the U.S., uh, is, is slowing down dramatically. And also, on, on the other hand, you know, if you look at the physical deficit, right, so this year is well above 8%. And I think going into next year, uh, the election year, it, it would be difficult for the incumbent uh, uh, party to bring down the government spending. Right? So I think physical deficit will remain well above six percent next year. And uh, so that, that that way, you know, if you, if you put everything together, it you know it would point to the path of higher and longer uh, interest rate for the U.S. Uh, uh, so I would say that you know even though. Um, um, the inflation momentum is slowing down, but I think overall the U.S. economy remains relatively strong, especially uh, when you only look at the service sectors. Let me ask you a bit more about the uh, the, the deficit. Um... Because we had the announcement from the Treasury Department, which maybe is more important than what the Fed did about its uh, borrowing requirements. Um, it's going to borrow less than it did last uh, last quarter. It needs. Uh, it says it needs about seven hundred and seventy six billion dollars. It borrowed a trillion dollars last quarter, so this was lower than what Wall Street um, was expecting. And it's going to switch um, how it funds that into shorter dated um, notes, while slowing the pace of ten and thirty year bond issues, simply because the yields have gone up so much um, there. But but Andrew, do you think this is going to be an important thing to watch going forward, the deficit, how it's going to be funded, and is the size of that deficit, uh, which is what, going to be about $1.7 trillion this year, is this going to be an important factor? Uh, there are two things here. The deficit might have been quite good in the last, quite good in inverted commas, as a, as a silent stealth kind of interest rate uh, uh, policy tool for the Fed. The Fed has nothing to do with the, with the deficit, of course. Okay, this is a co- completely a political decision, because it pushed and kept long-term yields up. Mm. All right. So now it might begin to be much, much more important as uh, should inflation begins to flatten out, that uh, and therefore the Fed feels much more comfortable with not increasing interest rates, or even God forbid, clear its throat and say we may even cut interest rates if uh, the deficit keeps long-term interest rates up. Remember, we said that the deficit is actually doing the Fed's business. So the Fed can go away and mm-hmm. long-term yields will stay up because Biden and his and his friends uh, uh, keep, uh, they, they keep spending. So it is, uh, it is a tricky balancing effect. And I suspect it's going to become much more important. Okay, let's put it like that. If inflation begins to come down or stay flat for the next three months, then I think the deficit will become much, much more important as a potential break to what the Fed is trying to do to the extent that interest rates will be kept high, despite the fact that the Fed might feel more comfortable now as where we are. Why? Because the deficit will keep long-term interest rates, which they are not policy rates, okay, high. Okay. How I want to switch to China because we've had a lot of data out uh, this week. We had yesterday uh, the uh, the Kaishin uh, PMI survey. The manufacturing PMI fell into contraction, 49.5 and 50.6 in September, missed uh, market forecasts, which were around 50.8. First time 
Uh, it's been in contraction since uh, since July. Uh, foreign sales declined for the fourth month. Buying levels fell for the first time since July. Employment shrank the most in five months. How, how worrying is this? Because these are SMEs, aren't they, who, who participated in this survey, which is crucial, of course, to, to job creation um, in, in China. How worrying is this? Yeah, uh, well, the SMEs create, you know, 60-70% of uh, China's jobs. So it's a very important sector. Uh, I think, you know, the number uh, was slightly below expectation was because, you know, from, for uh, one third of uh, October, uh, the, the entire China was on holiday, right? So there was a mid-autumn festival and then the, uh, the National Day Festival for, for well over a week. So therefore, you know, people are basically you know, staying at home and all that and are not working much. So I, I, would, I would say that, you know, we're going to see a stronger service PMI than the manufacturing PMI uh, later today. Uh, and also, you know, if you look at the uh, subcomponent of the PMI, uh, the new order index, um, you know, which has been expanding for a couple of months now, you know, starting to shrink. But I would say that, uh, you know, that is also due to the holiday effect as well. So I think, you know, this year the uh, seasonality is stronger than previous years. And, and therefore, you know, we see a, a surprising or a small surprise in terms of you know the the october pmi reading uh so i wouldn't be too concerned about that you know the reason being uh china just announced a special bond issuance of one trillion yuan and it's very rare that uh china actually increased the budget deficit uh in the uh, fourth quarter of this year part of the one trillion yuan uh special bonds uh, will go into next year to support next year's growth so i think you know five five percent for this year is largely in the bad in, in the bag uh, unless something unforeseeable happened and i think going into the next year the uh, management seems to be quite confident about uh, next year's growth outlook as well andrew what are your thoughts on this does the economic recovery does it look fragile when you look at this data actually surprisingly enough i'm taking a very tangential approach to that um, because the you know that uh, i'm not a great fan of pmi numbers and particularly when they move at glacial a uh, few basis points, few tens of basis points, it's either way. In other words, it's not a collapse below 50 to say, oh God, you know, here, here comes a, a recession. Uh, I was much more interested in the two-year conference that just finished, uh, reviewing the state of the financial system and in particular local authorities' debt uh, and the fact that C uh, uh, attended that meeting and the fact uh, that very consistently with economic policy making in China, uh, they declared that this is a major problem. And the solution to that is to make quite sure that the Communist Party is more in control than ever over this. Mm. And that the People's Bank of China is going to be brought under uh, the two new regulatory bodies. I don't even know the We don't know, perhaps even know the names yet. And you might tell me, hang on a minute, what, what does this tell you? It's telling you that the authorities are much more concerned about the finances right now rather than individual bits of the economy increasing or decreasing. And uh, politically speaking, as I said, this is very consistent with Chinese policymaking. If anything else fails, you bring in the Communist Party. But uh, if I was there, I would say, <clears throat> please make quite sure that we don't take over as a party the responsibility of sorting out debt in case it turns out to be much more difficult and we end up with a huge poison chalice to drink as opposed to washing our hands and blaming it all on the local authorities but the decision has been made okay and uh, once again 
see goes the way consistently and very predictably has done, and that is to tighten control through the supervision of the Communist Party. So I'm playing it in two ways, in the sense that uh, perhaps it's not a very good idea to take the blame, okay, on the Communist Party for trying to sort out the local authorities' debt. But on the other hand, this is very consistent with uh, Chinese policymaking. So in other words, this is not meant to be a criticism, it is meant to be a kind of, uh, you're sure it's a very good idea that we were not going to paint ourselves into a corner. Okay. How, what, what did you make of this? Uh, it was called the Central Financial Work Conference, um, held uh, twice a decade. So it was designed to set the sort of financial oversight for the next five years. They were talking about resolving local uh, government debt risks and expanding borrowing at the central government level. But I didn't see a lot of details about how exactly are they going to resolve um, all, all this debt. What are your thoughts on, on this meeting? Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's once in five years, right? So last meeting was in uh, 2017. Right? So even in that meeting, you see similar sort of wording uh, regarding, you know, some of the key areas uh, with hidden financial risk, for example, uh, the local government debt and also the private sector. And I think these two issues are related, right? So this time around, you know, there seems to be more emphasis on how to how best to resolve uh, the local government debt situation. Uh, so uh, uh, there's no surprise at all uh, in this meeting. Uh, I, I think you know the wording seems to me uh, is an extension uh, from last meeting five years ago. Uh, and also, you know, if you, if you remember in 2017, right? So China emerged from the uh, 5,000 uh, point uh, stock market bubble uh, uh, in 2016, uh, trying and trying to recover. And back then, you know, even though the uh, uh, focus area were quite similar to this time around, which is the debt problem and also the, the real estate sector. But, you know, China sort of, you know, put on even more leverage uh, in 2017, despite all the cautious wordings uh, being used in, in that meeting. Uh, mm. So, you know, it's more important to me to see, you know, how best they can resolve it. And as you said, Peter, you know, there seems to be more sort of the slogan chanting than uh, actual details. And everybody knows that the local government uh, sector is laden with that, right? So you know, if you look at the PDOC survey, there's more than 70 trillion uh, yuan worth of debt uh, in a 120 trillion yuan uh, economy. And I think the central government has about uh, 30 trillion uh, yuan worth of debt. So that is 100 and plus the private sector. Uh, so I think the uh, leverage ratio uh, for, for China in terms of debt to GDP is about uh, uh, 3.2, 3.5 times now. Right? So it's very, very high, especially for an emerging market. So it remains to be seen. Uh, I think uh, obviously there's a, a lot of work that needs to be done. Uh, the property sector, you know, is still ailing. If you look at the numbers from October sales uh, and also the uh, new construction uh, property sector investment, et cetera, et cetera, uh, it's down 10%, more than 10% year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so it remains to be seen, you know, what kind of details that can come out of it uh, after the meeting. I'm wondering what they mean when they use this word resolve um, government debt risks, because obviously there are losses and those losses aren't going to go away. So someone somewhere has to bear those losses. Who does the government think it should be? Does it think it should be uh, the local governments? Does it think it should be uh, the banks? Does it think maybe it should be the central government that bears the losses uh, here? Who, who, do, who do they expect uh, to actually yeah. bear well, these losses? Well, I think losses? the central... The central government has to take on more leverage. I mean, obviously, just now I mentioned that, right? So the central government only has about 
30 trillion yuan worth of debt. Right, so it's very little. If you, if you compare across the world, uh, you know, regarding, for example, the federal government of the U.S. and also the Japanese government, right? So obviously the central government of China is substantially uh, under-leveraged uh, in this equation. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that is because of the uh, the tax system set up, how the, uh, the tax system set up and how the central government and the local government divide up the tax receipts uh, from the provincial level. Right? So the, the, the local government has to uh, submit all the tax receipts to the central government, but then at the same time, uh, they are responsible for local uh, uh, economic development. So they have to spend money on that. Uh, so as a result, you know, the local government uh, sell land uh, to take the land sales proceeds and, and use it to build the local economies. So, you know, in a way, you know, it works tremendously well for, for the past 20 years. And China has registered uh, phenomenal growth uh, in the past 20 years. But then at the same time, you know, that means that uh, the local government doesn't have uh, enough tax revenue to offset the uh, spending they still have to do uh, for the local e economy. So I think as a result, you know, you can see you know, there's a, a very skewed uh, leverage ratio uh, between the central government and the local government. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think the local government has to step up. Uh, in terms of, you know, how best to resolve it, um, I would say that, you know, for one, you can uh, issue central government debt uh, bonds to uh, swap for the local government bonds to lower the borrowing ratio and the borrowing costs. Uh, and I think secondly, you know, probably uh, you have to uh, approve new sort of uh, type of tax for the local government to collect uh, money from uh, the local economy, namely uh, the, the property tax that has been in discussion for like <laughs> almost a decade now. Mm. Right? So they, they have to be able to generate enough tax receipts to you know, pay off the existing debt and also you know, to continue to build the local economies. Andrew, what, what do you think? It sounds like when the government says resolve, it means basically transfer, doesn't it, from, from local governments to, uh, to the central government, uh, or maybe some of it anyway. Do you think that's the right way to do it? It brought me memories during the Vietnam War when the American authorities were saying that they are going to use anti-personnel devices instead of fragmentation bombs, and they will terminate contracts with extreme prejudice rather than assassination. So I have no idea when I hear the word resolve. I said, <coughs> excuse me? <laughs> okay. What does it no, mean? Yeah. I think the, 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 answer, the answer may very well be. I take a slightly different uh, position here, is the fact that they said that they are going to increase a fiscal deficit from 3% to 3.8% may very well mean that the central government is going to have a much bigger role in resolving it, namely taking the loans over itself by simply expanding its own fiscal deficit. Because mm, uh, the central government's the only the only place where there's still a clean balance sheet, isn't there? So exactly. This is what uh, that professor in Beijing actually uh, more or less said, and they said, well, they're not resolving the problem at all. They're simply passing it on to somebody else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, Peter, I just want to add to that. Uh, right, so, you know, basically, if you look at the local government debt situation, right, so it's 70 trillion or more, uh, but I think most people uh, believe that the LGFVs, they're not going to default. And, you know, mm. because the central government would have to sort of back uh, the uh, local government to resolve all this uh, debt issue. So I think, you know, for, for most of us, uh, you know, we're just, you know, looking for a sort of a structural change, you know, between how you divided up the, uh, the debt between the central and the local government people. But then as a result, you know, there, there has to be a new structure to divide up the tax receipts between the central and the local government as well.
Mm. What, what do you make also how the other aspect of this meeting, which is the creation of a super regulator, which is going to oversee the financial system, it's going to oversee the People's Bank of China, the China Securities Regulatory Commission, in effect, um, it's really going to centralise control now over the financial system in the hands of, of President Xi. Um, is this a good idea? Yeah, I think the uh, idea has been sort of around for some time. It is a, a committee called Financial Stability, Stability Committee that sits on top of PBOC, uh, CSRC, uh, uh, and, and the rest of the uh, financial agencies. Uh, so it has already been uh, uh, set up. Uh, and also, you know, this committee, you know, reports strictly to the central uh, finance uh, work office, which is under the direct leadership of uh, Mr. Xi. Uh, so I think as a result, you know, it's a, a consolidation of regulatory power uh, to the top. And, and back then, you know, uh, before this uh, government restructuring, uh, the state council uh, is the one who's responsible for, you know, the PBOC and, and CSRC and all that. You know, so those agencies reported to uh, the state council, which is under the the, uh, the leadership of the, the premier, uh, who would be, you know, in charge of the Chinese economy. But I think right now, you know, after all this reshuffling and everything, uh, clearly uh, the regulatory power is being consolidated and, you know, reported to the uh, president's office. What, what do you think, Andrew? Is this, uh, is this the right way to do it? Ba- basically centralising control of uh, the financial system in the hands of the Communist Party, really, isn't it? And in the hands of President Xi? Yeah, well, as, as I said, it's very consistent. So in other words, uh, uh, as Rex say, this, there, is, there is no surprise. I think, let's say, politically speaking, might not be such a fantastic idea because any unpleasant measures taken, such as, for example, forcing the local authorities to uh, reduce and withdraw their own uh, direct or indirect support of the property sector, would be blamed directly to the feet of the Communist Party. And I'm not quite sure whether, you know, I would want to take on a chalice, a poison chalice, the size of a very large swimming pool. I was. Uh, Politically speaking, if I was there, I would say, let's spread the risk around rather than saying we are going to be completely responsible, we being in the Communist Party. But that's a political decision rather than an economic decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also the, the notion that continuously the party has uh, the technical knowledge and the technical expertise to take on solutions of what is primarily a technical problem will depend how much the party is willing to listen to advice from uh, let's say, technocrats, as opposed to their own advice. But having said that, number one, this is very consistent. Okay, in other words, this is not a critique. They're saying, ah, good, look what the Communist Party is doing now. They've been doing this uh, for a very long time, particularly under C. And the second point is is, uh, uh, the political political fallout of this uh, may very well end up at the feet of the Communist Party, which is something, presumably, that they have taken into account. Okay. Hal, before we finish up, I want to get your thoughts on the uh, the local markets um, here. Although the Hang Seng didn't do much uh, yesterday, it had a bad um, October. Uh, it was down, uh, what was it, th- uh, 2.9, sorry, it was down... Uh, th- 3.9% in October. For the year to date, it's down about 13.5%, the worst performer among global um, indices. The Shanghai Composite not doing much better. Um, it was down 2.9% in October, close to the lows of the year. It did drop below 3,000 um, a couple of weeks ago, rebounded back above that uh, for now. But what are your thoughts on where we are and what's, what it's going to look like going forward? 
very, very quickly, there are two things. First is, of course, is the interest rate situation in the United States, which is unresolved, which means as far as Hong Kong is concerned, high interest rates stay. And uh, then we go away because we have zero control over that. So in other words, if one looks at the Hong Kong property market, one has to go and ask Mr. Powell what he tends to do. And the second point is, is the accumulation of evidence that uh, property prices have been falling and uh, they had some of the worst declines, both cumulative and in terms of trend, uh, for the last uh, perhaps 10, if not uh, 20 years. So the property sector ain't doing well. And if that's the case, there is no way that the Hang Seng can do also well. Mm. So uh, taking the two things together, no change in interest rates, the property sector continues to get hit, therefore the Hang Seng Index stays hit. How are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I think even though it's still weakish, uh, there can be a technical balance here. Uh, I think uh, Andrew's right uh, to, to point out that, you know, because of the interest rate differential is still here, and therefore the pressure on the, the Hong Kong dollar and also on the Chinese yuan is still here, and therefore it's it's going to be a struggle for uh, both the Hong Kong market and also the mainland market. But having said that, you know, because the uh, uh, both markets have been sold down so aggressively, just now, Peter, you mentioned that, you know, the uh, foreign investors sold off the most uh, in, in, in recent years, basically in October. Uh, so I would say that, you know, because the sentiment is so pessimistic and we're going, you know, we're probably moving to, you know, towards the better part of the seasonality of the year. Uh, and also, you know, if the Fed can pause from here uh, and also the U.S. the U.S. markets, uh, you know, uh, continue to stage a rebound, uh, Hong Kong uh, can join in uh, in terms of, you know, uh, a technical rebound. But I think going into the next year, obviously, you know, there's so many unknown variables that we uh, discussed just now. It remains to be seen, you know, how uh, a sort of a technical bounce can sort of evolve into a more sustainable bounce. But other than otherwise, uh, it will be a similar year as this year. You know, you have a, a strong rebound initially and then end up giving all the, all the gain back plus more. Everyone's uh, so pessimistic. On so, Sorry, Andrew. Yep. Sorry, very, very, very quickly. Also, the, the number of uh, mortgages with negative equity in Hong Kong has been astronomical. I looked at the figures yesterday, and it is uh, it is astounding. We're talking now in tens of thousands, not uh, in few hundreds, and also involving uh, several billions of Hong Kong dollars of negative uh, mortgages, negative equity mortgages. And again, this is another, let's say, symptom of, uh, of an achy property market. Mm. How when when um how when the sentiment is so bad when valuations are, are so beaten up, um isn't that's normally a good time to buy, isn't it? So aren't you tempted, um sort of you know the, the, this period maybe turn out in you know in hindsight to have been a very good buying opportunity? Yeah, for for trade, yes. Um, I think around seventeen thousand points for the Hang Seng and three thousand points for the uh, the Shanghai Composite. Uh, you know, seems to be the the lower point of of this trading cycle. Uh, so I think for traders, uh, you know, many of many of us, you know, are itching to you know put on our position uh, for a technical rebound. Especially now, you know, the near term uh, U.S. interest rate uncertainties have been resolved, uh, even though the longer term outlook remains to be seen. Uh, so I, I would say that you know, uh, seventeen thousand uh, for Hang Seng is a very reasonable level uh, to to trade for a rebound and also 3,000 for the Shanghai Composite. Okay. Well, thank you both very much for your thoughts on what's been a, a busy day for, for business and finance news. You heard there Hao Hong, who is Chief Economist at Grow Investment Group. Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Peter Lewis is Money Talk.
I'm joined now by Ross Feingold, who is Business Development Director at SafePro Group over in Taipei. Good morning, Ross. Good morning. Now, Foxconn says its current operations are normal and has called for confidence in the company after a tax probe, which was launched by Chinese authorities. Um, Honhai is under tax and land investigations in several Chinese provinces. Um, Ross, how much is this linked to the fact that uh, Foxconn's founder, uh, Terry Gao, is, uh, is standing as president in, as a candidate for president in Taiwan? Well, that's certainly uh, the common belief is that this is an expression of displeasure with Terry Goh's campaign. And the the reason for that is, although Terry Goh, uh, as far as what his proposed policies towards China would be, should he be elected the president here, uh, is a policy that China would like. Uh, but the issue is it's splitting the opposition vote. So most polls show that the combined opposition vote is uh, far ahead of what uh, the DPP candidate, William Lai, the current vice president, would get. But with the with three opposition candidates, if you include uh, Terry Goh, there's also the Nationalist Party candidate and the Taiwan People's Party candidate, it, it splits the opposition field. So uh, the, the common view is China is, is angry about Mr. Goh instead of helping to support uh, one opposition candidate, he's just splitting the vote. Now, on the other hand, uh, you know, the, this might just be the normal course of things. China uh, sometimes does investigate foreign companies. That's been in the news a lot lately, uh, including Taiwan companies. And it's also a way to send a message to uh, Taiwan companies that uh, the, you know, we are going to investigate you periodically as a way to show that we can. And it's not the first time that China has, uses, uh, has used this tactic against Taiwan. Taiwan companies. Uh, it's one of those tactics that China has to show its displeasure with Taiwan in general, you know, just like military exercises or persuading a country to drop diplomatic relations with Taiwan are, another, are, are the other kinds of tools that China has to sometimes show its displeasure. But I think we have to take at face value when, when the company says uh, operations are normal and uh, they're going to cooperate with these probes. Uh, I, I think we take at face value and, and operations are, are probably normal. I remember when um, when he announced his intention to run for president, he, he basically said that China couldn't touch him or his company. In fact, if I, if I quote him directly, he said at the time, if the Chinese Communist Party regime were to say, if you don't listen to me, I'll confiscate your assets from Foxconn, I would say, yes, please do it. I can't follow their orders. I won't be threatened. It sounds like, doesn't it, that Beijing's calling his bluff now. Uh, well, I don't think any of Mr. Goh's assets are at risk. Uh, he, he's uh, a significant shareholder in the company, uh, but they're not going to. China can't take his shares. The company, uh, the, the company operates without him. His involvement anymore. He's not even on the board of directors. Uh, he resigned from that when, when he decided to run for president. Uh, so he's not involved in day-to-day -day operations. It's not clear what China could really confiscate. I mean, that was some great standing from Mr. Goh, I think, when people said, oh, but you, you, you were involved with a company for many years that has tremendous investments in China. How, how can we trust you? So that was his kind of off-the-cuff remark uh, you know, by way of saying he'll, he'll stand up to China if it becomes necessary. So he, um, China can't do to Foxconn what it basically did to Alibaba and Jack Ma when Jack Ma challenged Beijing, and it, it really cut them down to size, didn't it? You don't think there's the same risk I, there? Yeah, I, I don't think that's... That's not really a plausible uh, outcome for you know for a Taiwan company uh, as opposed to a mainland China company. Uh, and uh, Mr. Go is not in China right now, so at least he does, he's not his mm. personal safety is not at risk either.
Now, on the election front itself, there's, there's talk about two of the opposition candidates uh, joining forces um, to try and avoid uh, splitting uh, the, the votes and, um, and, and giving the, basically the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the election uh, to the DPP. What, what's the chances of that happening? Well, there's been on again, off again negotiations between the Nationalist Party and the Taiwan People's Party, uh, both for the presidential ticket as well as for legislators as well, so that they could stop the DPP from maintaining its majority in the legislature. Uh, but like I said, these have been off again, on again. There's been a lot of uh, back and forth criticism between these two parties in the media about who is helping and who is hurting talks towards unity. But ultimately, they can't seem to agree on the key issue, which is who would be at the top of the ticket and who would be the vice presidential candidate. And if they can't agree on that, it's going to be pretty difficult for them to have any kind of joint ticket. Right? Obviously, somebody's got to give way. So either mm. Ho Yoi, who's the candidate for the Nationalist Party, or Ko Wen who's the candidate for the Taiwan People's Party, one of them would have to say, okay, fine, I'll be the vice president run, uh, and I'll be number two, and we could win the election and live happily ever after. But until one of them is willing to uh, give way on that, there won't be a unity ticket. And how do you think their uh, their supporters would react um, to that? Because they sort of appeal to different sort of pools of voters, don't they? Well, well um, is there the risk actually that if they were to join forces, uh, they wouldn't at all uh, reunite the, uh, the the voting? They might split them up even more. Uh, well, again, based on the polls that, that show a, a real ceiling for William Lai of the DPP, his support being around the mid-30s, and uh, polls show that combined the opposition w- would easily win the election. So uh, the, the working assumption is that they could beat William Lai if they unite. Uh, it wouldn't cause too much of a, a, a bleed in votes back to William Lai, uh, which, and you're correct, they do, uh, the two parties, the Nationalist Party and the Taiwan People's Party, do appeal to somewhat uh, different constituencies or voter blocks, but the hope is that that all those voter blocks are, are united in one thing, which is to defeat the DPP after eight years of a DPP president. Uh, so they got that going for them if they could overcome the major issue, which is who will be the president and who would be the vice president. And of course, we shouldn't forget as well as the presidential election, there is, there is a parliamentary election as well, isn't there, for, for, for the legislator. Um, what's, the st- what's the state of uh, the, the polls for that? It's it's very hard to poll the ele- poll legislative election because there, there's about seventy constituency seats, but then there's an, about a little, around thirty at large seats, uh, so it becomes very difficult to do effective polling. But again, the 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 working assumption is if the opposition can unite, if they're not running against each other, uh, and they could work out a deal where uh, in certain constituencies they'd give way to the other party, uh, that they had a, a good chance. Of, of throwing out the DPP's majority. And, and it, it doesn't look like the Nationalist Party, the Taiwan People's Party on their own could get a majority, but it does look like combined they might have a majority uh, and it would put the DPP into the minority. Well, one scenario to, to be concerned about, though, would be if combined the DPP uh, is a minority versus the Nationalist Party and the Taiwan People's Party, but there is a DPP president, and and that would lead to some chaos and would make uh, effective governance very, very difficult here.
Mm, okay, so to ch- change tack a bit, um, the, the Congressional Committee in the US that's looking into China, the Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party, I, I think it's called, has written to the Treasury Secretary. It sounds like, from what they're saying, they really want uh, the, the US Treasury to take a hard line, don't they, on sanctions uh, against China? Well, yeah, they recently issued a letter, and this has to do with uh, President Biden's er earlier uh, directive that he's going to impose restrictions on venture capital or private equity investments in some key technological areas like AI or semiconductors. So the Treasury Department is supposed to be coming up with these rules or the specifics about how that order will be implemented. And the letter uh, from it was a bipartisan letter. It came from the chairman as well as the ranking member, the the, the senior Democrat on the committee, it basically reminding the Treasury, you know, we're watching. You better issue some really strict regulations regulations to implement President Biden's order. Uh, then one thing that caught my eye in this letter is in, in the penultimate paragraph, they mentioned the public markets as well. And, and this is a distinction that uh, sometimes gets lost in all the conversations about restricting U.S. investment in China or all the criticism. So there'll be critics in the U.S. will say, oh, you're, you're funding Chinese companies that do X, Y, or Z. But, but they're, they're sometimes pointing their criticism at asset managers, you know, uh, firms uh, or a Hong Kong subsidiary of a U.S. firm that runs an asset management business that offers unit trusts, and the unit trusts might hold shares in certain uh, Chinese companies or might be an ETF that tracks the market. Uh, and you know, the experts that are, are in your audience would, would see a great distinction between a private equity or a venture capital type of investment versus investments in the public markets. But the letter uh, mentions public markets as well, and it basically signals that people in Congress are now watching that and the critics are watching that as well. And, and they're going to come after inv- U.S. investors who, through the public markets, like in Hong Kong or in Shanghai, uh, are investing in Chinese tech companies or other types of Chinese companies uh, that, that that might have a role in national defense in China. Uh, so they're coming after that as well, whereas before maybe there was a more focus on private equity or venture capital style investments. Uh, but now uh, directing money into the public markets uh, to shares issued by certain Chinese companies, that's not going to be good anymore. This will be a major step up, wouldn't it, of, um, of, of what the U.S. is doing, because it's never gone that far or never even suggested it wants to go that far in terms of stopping funds from investing in the public markets, just buying shares as part of um, an investment trust or a pension fund or buying ETFs. They've never gone that far. It's hard to imagine the Treasury Department also agreeing to that. Well, they could agree because the atmosphere, you know, that's what the atmosphere is as far as, quote unquote, being tough on China. Uh, but sure, I, people, uh, again, people in the audience uh, are, are experts in this stuff. And you know, you, your first reaction would be to say, you're, you're nuts. How is an investment in the public markets propping us? You know, I'm not handing money to the Chinese Communist Party mm-hmm. or the central government uh, by investing in, in the listed shares of, of, a, of a certain Chinese company. It's not putting cash into the hands of management. Uh, well, although, of course, a, a healthy share price is always good for, for management, right? A healthy mm. share price becomes currency to use in an acquisition, for example. Uh, but yeah, again, I can see where people in the audience are going to say, that's nutty. Um, but that just shows where the atmosphere is for, for being tough on China, that even investment in the public markets now is ripe for criticism by members of Congress. Now, finally, before you go, tell me about Kirk Campbell. He looks like he's going to be nominated 
nominated to be the Deputy uh, Secretary of State. Now, he has some form when it comes to China, doesn't he? Well, he's the so-called Asia czar at the National Security Council uh, since the start of the Biden administration. And he's previously served uh, in, in the Obama and Clinton administration. So he uh, he's somebody that people uh, in the past would call a, an old China hand that he's been around the Asia policy making game for many, many decades. Uh, and when he's not been in government, he's been do- running a consulting business, uh, helping companies navigate doing business in the Indo-Pacific region. So you can see on paper where 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 he'd be a, a logical candidate for a senior level opening uh, at the state department although uh, you know, he wouldn't he would no longer be focused only on asia it would be a global role uh, frankly i'm not sure why he would want to switch out of his asia focused role uh, he, even though on paper he, he's being nominated for a more senior and more prestigious position uh, but there might only be a year year plus left in the biden administration and, and frankly his confirmation is going to be difficult because there'll be uh, a lot of republican senators who are going to say you weren't tough enough on china during the time that you were the asia czar for the biden administration or you didn't do enough uh, to support allies like the Philippines, for example, with all its territorial disputes in the South China Sea, with China that's been in the news so much recently. So he he's going to have a very difficult confirmation fight. Uh, it's not guaranteed that he'll he'll uh, he'll pass through the Senate. I guess there's always a fallback. He could just stay in his current job, which is not a Senate confirmed job. Okay, Ross, always good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. That's Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at Safepro Group over in Taiwan. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's program, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Frederick Chu, Managing Director at Magnum Research. And with a view from South Korea, it's Peter Kim, Managing Director and Investment Strategist at KB Securities in Seoul. Bye for now. Money Talk.